I used to be a teacher, and every year we would do a fundraiser at our school. And so this year we were going to raise money for an orphanage in Kenya. It's a great cause. We were going to raise, I don't know, a thousand or so dollars. But somebody had the brilliant idea, and I use brilliant with air quotes, brilliant idea, to have it be that in between each and every class, over the speakers in the hallways, every single class break, they were going to play a song. And they picked the most annoying song of all time, and I'm just going to stamp it as that right now. And they would play it until they raised the money for that day. <laughs> right? So they were holding us hostage at school. I'm pretty sure the FBI needs to know about this. <laughs> so every day, first block would get over, and instead of a bell, we'd hear the opening lines to the song, Blue, by Eiffel 56. You're like, I don't know that song. Well, let me give you just a taste of how lyrically powerful this song is. Yo, listen up. Here's a story about a little guy who lives in a blue world. I don't know if that's a metaphor. I don't get it. All day and all night, everything he sees is just blue, like him inside and out. Blue, his house. They couldn't rhyme that, so they had to put blue at the beginning. With a blue little window and a blue Corvette, because everything is blue to him. And his self, his self, and everyone else, because he ain't got nobody to listen. Now wait for it. Here is the chorus. I'm blue, Baba D, Baba die. Baba D, Baba die, Baba D, Baba die. Just wait for it. Baba D, Baba die. Now, if that's not a level of hell, <laughs> I don't know what would be. So imagine this song on every day. Now, I was not, I'm not a rich man, and I wasn't a rich man when I taught at a small school, but I was seriously thinking about cleaning out my savings account <laughs> and be like, can we just be done with this song? You know, it really makes me think as I, I think about this song, and this obviously is a, just a funny story to go along with our, our point, but I think about these songs that people sing and these, these, these anthems of the summer and whatever they are, so many of them are just vapid. There's, there's nothing to them. Anybody ever had that where they, they, they have a song that they grew up with and they, and they hear how the song was made, right? It's like seeing the sausage made, you don't want to know, right? And, and you have this song and, and, and your favorite artist and you're like sitting there and you're going, oh, I love this artist. I, I can't wait to hear. And the guy's like, yeah, I just thought that word sounded good with the other one. And you're going, but this was my teenage years. You got me through teens with this song. And there's no deeper meaning. Instead, it's just, I like the way it sounded. I mean, are you telling me she wasn't born and raised in South Detroit? Because <sighs> there is no South Detroit. That's the funny thing about that song. Or these people that sing beautiful songs with wonderful melodies and hitting these notes and, and people singing beautiful notes about stupid things. Our psalmist, though, doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to know that we have an infinite number of things to sing about. Unlike the world, which seems to be running out of things to sing about, 
we don't have a shortage of things to sing about. So today's psalm, the goal of today's psalm is not, hey, here's, a, here's an analysis of a psalm. My goal, and I'm going to put it right out there at the very front, is I want to give you guys more reason to praise God when you walk out of here than you had when you started. And this psalm does that. And it does it in ways that I think are surprising. And I'm excited to show them to you. So why do we sing a new song? We've seen this in several psalms already. Why do we sing a new song? Because there is so, so much to sing about. He's going to give us reasons to praise him in song and in word and in deed. A few weeks ago when we were in Psalm 96, we talked about how people get overwhelmed, they break into singing, especially in musicals and in movies. But in reality, there's that same kind of thing. If, if you have something happen, songs come to mind, and that's the way we're made. And the idea here is, what would do that in your life? And I would say life-altering truths, life-altering love changes how you view things. So this psalmist is going to lay out that God is our king, our savior, and our judge. He's going to tell us how to have real joy. So let's look at it. There's three questions we're going to look at today. The first one is, why are we invited to praise? And this will hit the first few verses. How are we invited to praise? And then who is invited to praise? But don't lose track of the fact our goal is to stir up praise. My goal today is to encourage you to praise, give you more reasons to sing a new song. See, all of life is worship. All of life is praise. It's a song that we sing. It doesn't have to be in tune. It doesn't have to be to a catchy melody. But it's a song that each of us are singing as we go about our lives. So the first question, why are we to praise God? And the simple answer is, God saved us, and we did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to accomplish it. We can do nothing to pay him back. He saves us. Look at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked for salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So we see verse 1. He says, this is salvation accomplished. I've done it. Second thing we see is salvation revealed. And he says, it's to everyone everywhere to see it. And then last, he explains it in verse 3. So let's walk through it. We see th this, this psalm kind of starts off with little, like a, like a summary statement, and then it's like he double clicks on it and expands it, each, each stanza. So here he's talking about the marvelous things. The word marvelous means wonderful. It means outstanding, amazing. The New Living Translation says, his right hand has won a mighty victory. His holy arm has shown his saving power. The right hand symbolizes power. It symbolizes a warrior king. Jesus is said to be at the right hand of God in a dozen places in the New Testament. It says he is made known in verse 2, meaning revealed. One translation says made known God's victory. See, God is not embarrassed by the salvation that he's extended to us. It's not a secondary plan. 
It's not like God's plan is like, Adam and Eve are gonna stay in the garden forever, it's gonna be awesome. And then they mess it up and God's like, oh, okay, gotta do plan B. Man, okay, all right. That wasn't it. This is not a secret. This was the plan from the start. And he lets the world know. He, he says, I'm gonna put Israel right where they are. And if you've ever studied where Israel is, they're in the center of everything. They're in the literal middle of the world. Everything in the Mediterranean world has to travel through Israel. And so this Israel was to make the God of Israel known. This psalm is also referencing the Exodus. And this idea of the Exodus is a small version of what Jesus did on the cross. Psalm 97 was very much about holiness, and Ross brought that out last week. This week, it's how can we praise this God? How can we approach this God of holiness? And the Israelites struggled with this. How, how can we go near God if he's so holy? But then, because of Christ, we can do that. No longer is God against us, but he is for us in Christ. And this is meant to stir something up in us. And I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, the invitation of the gospel are invitations to happiness. In delivering God's message, we do not ask men to come to a funeral, but a wedding feast. If our errand were one of sorrow, we might not marvel when people refuse to listen, but it is one of gladness. In fact, you might condense the gospel into this joyful invitation. Come and learn how to sing a new song. Come and find peace, joy, rest. Come and eat what is good and delightful for your soul. See, this is a gospel psalm. When Jesus came to earth the first time, God didn't go, oh yeah, he's, he's over there. No, he sends a choir of angels, legions of angels to sing a song. And as long as the gospel is preached, it's good news. That's what the word means. It's good news. If you have the cure for cancer, you're going to announce it from the rooftops. The word that we use for the good news was a word that was a heralding. It was a, it was a yelling of the good news. It's meant to be a source of joy for us. And as we continue in verse 3, he says, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. See, the God of Israel is not a localized deity. He's the God of everyone on earth. His victory, his salvation is sure. So what we see in this opening three verses is the psalmist is saying, here's the reason why we praise. Here's the reason why we are to be joyful. God has done this. He's the salvation. He's the Savior. He's the one that brought it. And we are to then respond. So then that takes us to the second question. How are we to praise? Look at verse, verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So how are we to praise? This is supposed to be a coronation. This is supposed to be a celebration. Now, I will say, we didn't see the kind of coronation that is being talked about here with Prince Charles, all right? Some of you watched that. It was, it was very British, right? Okay, no offense, Jackie, if you're in here, okay? It's very British. It's very pomp and circumstance. It's very prim and proper. It's very subdued. 
Well, I'll, get, I'll tell you, the British are the, the, the minority when it comes to these coronations. If you go and you look at the history of coronations, these are year-long celebrations, and it's not the British, no, that's very nice, right? It's, it's, it's dancing, and it's, it's, it's feasting, and it's, it's singing. This is what we are meant to be. I'm not sure I could see Prince Charles dancing. It's meant to be a vibrant party, and that's the picture that we see here. Make noise in a jubilant way. And what's interesting is that this psalm is structured like the gospel. And I love this. So let me show it to you. It says, we first need to know why we're joyful so that we can then be joyful. What happens a lot in Christian circles is we get that backwards. Well, we need to pump the crowd up and we need to get all these happy songs and we need to have lights and fog machines and, and, and all of this to pump up the joy so that they then feel the joy about our God. When the actual source is supposed to be our relationship with the Lord that overflows in singing, that's what he's talking about here. See, we do the same thing when it comes to the gospel too, don't we? We go, I can be a Christian when I start acting like one, or I can be a Christian when I, when I do certain things. That's not the good news. That's more, that's more bad news. That's bad news. I gotta earn my way to heaven. That's bad. The good news is Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We were still in our sins. He died for us. The gospel is, it's done, and then we respond to that. That's the same thing we see in this psalm, and I love it. He says, here's the reasons why you're to be joyful. And then he says, go ahead, take the, take the restrictions off, be joyful. Your Lord wants you to be joyful in response. So we're to be joyful, and then we're to sing out. Remember, God doesn't sit back and go, oh man, I have to save them? Oh, really? Couldn't I get like the pick of the litter? Oh, that's not the way he does it. Instead, he proclaims it from the rooftops. I mean, we have every reason for God to say, not them. He makes it clear that he's in control. He makes it clear that his son died on our behalf, and yet many times we act like he doesn't exist. But because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his grace, he does not throw us away in shame. He's not ashamed of us. Hebrews 2, 11 says, this is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, because they are his. So we must not be ashamed. We must join the noise. Join the noise. I mean, be, be a part of that. I remember when I was, um, I don't know if it was in seminary or my, my first few years as teacher, I would listen to sermons and, and other biblical teachings as I was driving, and I had a car with no air conditioning, and I had the windows down. And when I was in Portland, if I pulled up to a stoplight and there were people around me or other cars with windows down, I'd turn it down a little bit. I'd turn it down for that 15 seconds of worrying that that person might get mad because they might hear something true. And I think... That was me being ashamed of God. That was me allowing the fear of man to run me. And so fear is, is, is overwhelming and, and it gets in the way of our praise. Fear that things aren't gonna work out the way they're supposed to. Fear that someone might judge me. Fear that someone at a stoplight for 15 seconds might look at me cross. I mean, I probably deserve that anyways for how I'm driving. But seriously, what, why, am I, why am I ashamed? 
So here we see his universal salvation. And there's this response. Look at the responses we see. It says, play with the lyre. Now, a lyre is a harp. Play a melody on the harp. It says, use the trumpets. Play the trumpets. This is the only time in the Psalms that trumpets are used. Could be a shofar, you know, that that horn-like thing, or it could be what we expect as a trumpet. But it says, make a joyful noise. Now, the English Standard Version, which is the one we read up here, and some of you have that, it, it says, make a joyful noise. Every other translation says something like joyful shout. And I think that the the translators were having a hard time imagining a joyful shout. Man, I love you! Woo! Right? You're the best! Ah! Shouting kind of makes it aggressive, doesn't it? Like you're all like, I don't know if I want you to love me, Pastor John. (laughs) Right? So I tried to come up with a, a way to understand what this joyful shout looks like, and I, and I think the best way to think of it is, is like a sporting event, right? You go to a sporting event, and something happens. You're watching the game, and, and they score a touchdown, and it's like everybody in the stadium is all saying, yeah, at the same time. Have you ever witnessed that? Well, you will now, right? Or you go to a Blazer game, you don't hear yeahs. You hear a lot of no's. <laughs> Sorry, Rusty and Crystal. It was a rough year, right? But I mean, you, you, we were watching the NBA Finals and, and there was a close game and it was at home and the home team lost and you could hear everybody when they hit a three, no, they all said no at once. This is the kind of noise we're talking about here. I'm also really encouraged, and you all should be too, that it says make noise, not melody. It doesn't say we gotta sound good. It's just we gotta sound what? loud. This is where uh, Isaac Watts gets his Joy to the World song, by the way. It comes from this, this passage. That song that's about Jesus' second coming, it's so good about the second coming that we sing it about his first coming at Christmas, right? And, and it's one of those songs where it's just so perfect. Knowing that Jesus has come and will come should bring joy to the world. Let's keep going. It says, break forth This is a really weird word in the Hebrew. It means to explode, right? It means to burst out. One author says, burst out with a delight that's too great to be contained. So this is a really epic sentence. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I read Hebrew scholars, and this is what they said, that there's three words in a row, and the words are burst out or explode, rejoice and sing. So really the translation here is explode in jubilant song with music. I just love that, that picture of exploding with jubilance and song. And if it matches to a musical notes, great. But it's the exploding with jubilance that matters. Again, Spurgeon says, our voices have many modulations. Voices of conversation, voices of complaint, Voices of pleading, voices of command, but we must have a voice of a psalm. Man's voice, and I love this, this is great. Man's voice is at its best when it sings the best words in the best spirit to the best of beings. Woman's words are at its best when it sings the best words of the best spirit, in the best spirit to the best of beings. See, we are at our very, very best when we are praising God. And I think when you're done with this sermon, you'll see that we've got lots of reasons to praise. 
So how are we to praise? We're to praise with joy. We're to praise with loud voices. We must see this. Now, it, it, it's interesting because it, I've just told you all we're to, to sing about our salvation. And I think sometimes we kind of stop and we go, this seems really self-centered. Like, I'm singing about the fact that these things that I did are not being counted against me. It seems very self-serving. Like, sometimes maybe we even get going and going, uh, is it really okay for me to sing about my sins that have been forgiven? That seems to make a lot about me and not as much about God. But I'm going to answer that with, the final section here gives us a reason to sing that maybe we've never thought about before. So let's look at it. The final question we're looking at is, who is invited to praise the one true God? We see all of nature sings out, and then he tells us what they're singing about, which again is a surprise. Look at verse seven. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. So the first thing we see is the seas are roaring. I mean, we, we've heard that, right? The loud sea. And it says that everything that fills it, let it make noise. From the sea cucumber to the blue whale, all of them in between, let the water and the things in the water roar, make noise. In verse 8, he says, some more water, he says, the rivers will clap their hands. How loud does a river have to be for it to sound like clapping? In between that, he says, the world and all those who dwell in it, everything that is in the world. And he says, and part of the world will be the hills singing. I don't know what exactly that means, but it's going to be epic. I think what he's saying here is he's saying every single part of the earth, from the smallest molecule to the biggest mountain, from the tiny microbe to the biggest star, every single thing is praising God and has been praising God and will be praising God. The New Living Translation says, let the rivers clap their hands with glee. Let the hills sing out their songs of joy. See, God is in dominion now. He is over everything, and nature sees it. Nature's doing what it's created to do. Praise God continually. We're the aberration. We're the ones that aren't praising God continually. So why is this happening? What are they doing? Are they, they praising God for his love? Are they praising God for his sovereignty, for his grace? We can go through the whole list, but look at verse 9. It says, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. This seems like an odd thing to throw in there. Judgment is coming, so sing with joy. I, I can't imagine that. You're a kid and you're, you're doing something, I know that none of us did this, but we can imagine. Kids doing something they're not supposed to do. Parents said, don't do this thing, right? And the kids are like, oh, we're going to get away with it. And then they hear dad's footsteps. That right there, the coming of judgment, do we think that that's going to stir up joy? Yay, we get caught. Awesome. I can't wait to get grounded. I mean, come on. That's not what we would expect here. We would expect anything else other than coming in judgment because when we think of judgment, we go right to, I did something wrong, I deserve punishment. And so that makes this 
kind of colored. Now, it would be really easy if he, if he just kind of threw that in there and we could just go on to the rest of verse 9 or verse 10 and we could just kind of forget and say, eh, judge, maybe he means something different. But look at the rest of verse 9. He, God, will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, equity doesn't mean what our world means it to mean. It means fairness, God's fairness. So how does this bring about joy? So God's going to show up and he's going to judge me for my sins and I'm going to be happy about it. Yay. That doesn't seem like a source of joy. When most people think of sins, they think of sins being punished, sins being paid for. And that is absolutely 100% right. That's not going off the table. And it's for sure about that. But there is another form of judgment that we need to understand. And that's what this passage is talking about for those of you that know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's an important thing. So let me explain it to you this way. There's two types of court cases in the United States. Now, there's all sorts of levels, so don't get hung up on the level, levels, right? There's a Gladstone court, there's an Oregon court, there's a, you know, so on. But there's two kinds, two categories. The first one is criminal. We all know this, right? This is the one where somebody does something, breaks the law, and so they'll have a court case, and it'll be like the state of Oregon versus Rusty Melmer. I'm just picking on you today, so there you go, right? That's a court case. He broke the law, the, the, the government's going after him, Okay? The second version is called a civil case. Civil is just short for civilian or civics or, or members of society. So this would be two people. One of them says that some, they did something to them, and so they'll sue them. Okay, so those are the kind of the two ways that they are done. Sometimes there's a law that's been broken with the civil court cases. Other times not. But in both of these, there's a judge. And in both of these, there's a, a, an understanding of how it works. So let's do the criminal one first. Because I think we're more familiar with that, and then we'll do the civil one. So criminal cases, a law has been broken. And in our cases, we know we've broken the law all over the place. We are guilty. We deserve the punishment that Christ got on the cross. We deserve damnation for our sins. Whether we think they're big or small, they're all the same. So God is coming as a judge. We know there is no way for us to get off. And that's where the cross comes in. Jesus comes in and he takes the punishment of all those who are his and says, not guilty. Not guilty. I've been punished in your place. So see, judgment always does involve punishment. It's either going to be yours or it's going to be Christ's in your place. And those are your two options. So in the criminal case, the one that we always go to, it's always about Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. For the wages of sin are death. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's where you are. You're still there. But there's more to that verse. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Jesus comes in and he does what Isaiah 53 says. Look at this. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. They made holes in his body because of your sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. They stomped on him and destroyed him for your sin. And upon him was the chastisement. All of it was placed on him in your place. So yes, when we think about judgment, we definitely don't ever want to get past the fact that Christ took the judgment for us. 
But if you're in Christ, if you are one of his redeemed children, there is no more judgment like that on you. Christ has taken it. Amen? Now for the second one, and this is when this gets even better. So the, the cool thing about the gospel and the good news is that it's like, it's like unwrapping a present and being like, oh, that's awesome, and then realizing there's more to the present, right? And you just keep finding more and more. It's like one of those Russian dolls that keeps getting smaller, but instead it's like Narnia, right? You open up the next present and it's bigger, and you're like, how did that work? You open up the next present, it gets bigger. That's the gospel. It just keeps getting bigger and better. Listen to how great this is. So in a civil case... The difference is not, I don't want to go to court. The difference is, I actually do want to go to court. I'm the one who's been wronged. I'm the plaintiff. I'm the one who's been hurt. And so I go to the judge to say, can I come into the courtroom? I have an ironclad, I have an ironclad case. Will you listen? In most places in the world where there's corruption, the average person can't get into a courtroom to sue the government, to sue the individual who hurt them, to right wrongs. The, 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 the law is the first place where they clamp down on it and go, yeah, we're not letting you in here. We're controlling this. And so here with the civil case, as, as followers of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have access to the courtroom. We have access to the judge. Those who are found in Christ can fix, the, the wrongs will be fixed. I'm reminded of in Luke 18, the, the story of the widow who kept bug, bugging the judge because the judge wouldn't hear her case. See, that's the thing is we have an ironclad case. We have been wronged in this life. We've been hurt. There's been things that have been done to us that hurt us. And the promise here is that God will make that right. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For your judge, the people, the, you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Psalm 96, which we saw a couple weeks ago. Let the field exult and everything in it. All the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and peoples in fairness and faithfulness. Psalm 35. Vindicate me, O Lord. Fix my situation. Show me in the right, O Lord, my God according to your righteousness, and let them re not rejoice over me. So this is, the, this is the judgment that we want. This is where God comes in and he fixes every wrong. The good news for those who, you who are his is that when he comes as a king, he comes as a judge who will fix everything. See, I left out part of Isaiah 53 when we looked at it a minute ago. So let's read the whole thing. He was pierced for our transgressions, yes, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, again, with the sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, we don't have to be fearful of this judge. The judge is at the door. But what does it say? Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear. Psalm 147.3, he will bind up every wound. The judge is coming. He will set the bone. He will unite every, un untie every treachery. He will reverse the effect of every desertion. He will restore every painful moment. Every disease will be sponged away. Every cruelty will dissolve into absolute nothingness. Those without a father will have their heavenly father. 
and all of the pieces of God's glorious plan are going to go together and there will be no pieces that don't fit. It will all fit together. He will vindicate those of us who've been oppressed, who've suffered evil. I'm reminded of a quote at the end of the, the Return of the King by Frodo. Frodo says, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Tim Keller, of course, who loved Lord of the Rings, said this, and I think it's very fitting. Every sad, everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having been broken and lost. Everything sad is going to become untrue. Jason Gray, a Christian songwriter, wrote two songs on this. I'll send them to you tomorrow if you're on our mailing list. Please sign up if you're not. These songs are powerful. But this is what he writes. The winter can make us wonder if spring was ever true. But every winter breaks upon the Easter's lily bloom. Could it be everything sad is coming untrue? Could you believe everything sad is coming untrue? Broken hearts are being unbroken. Bitter words are being unspoken. The curse is undone. The veil is parted. The garden gate will be left unguarded. Could it be everything sad is coming untrue? Oh, I believe everything sad is coming untrue in the hands of the one who's making all things new. Jesus is coming again. And if he is your savior, if he is your king, and he is your judge, the promise is what we see in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. The earth gets it as well, Revelation 21, 5. Behold, I'm making all things new. So this is the singing we're to bring forth. It's lives made new, it's hearts made new, it's lives torn asunder made new. This judge is coming, he's not coming to condemn us. He is coming to condemn those who are still in their sins. So make sure that you're not that. But if you know him as your savior and your king, he's coming to make things right. Let me put it one last way as we finish up. The opening line of the psalm says, sing a new song. Sing a new song. We'll see several psalms this summer that will say that. Sing something new. Sing something unheard before. And we go, how can we do that? Won't we run out of things to sing about? And the emphatic answer of the Psalms is no. There's plenty to sing about. Let me give you some examples as we wrap up. We're to praise him for how though we have sinned, he's removed our sins from us and forgiven us as if we've never sinned. That means there's a song for every forgiven sin. I don't know about you, but that's plenty of songs for me. Praising him for how when we do the right thing in obedience because of his son and the work of the spirit, that's a new song for every act of obedience, every sacrifice. Unfortunately, I wish I had more of those. Praising him for how many countless blessings we have, if we only had eyes to see. We live in a pretty blessed part of the world. We live in a place where we don't want for much. And if you were just to stop and walk around your house and start thanking God and singing a song for every single blessing that you employ in your day, I don't know that you're leaving the house. Praising him for how he has promised and he has to turn sad things untrue. 
how he will make the bad that we've experienced in this life become glory in the next life. So that is a song for every painful moment. Some of you have chronic pain, whether it be physical or emotional, there's pain there. We are meant to sing a new song in response to that pain because there's a promise that he will make all things new. Every hurt will be made new. And see, the thing about it is, is I've just given you four kind of categories to praise. We haven't even gotten to talk about God yet. We haven't talked about his wisdom or his glory or his grace or his mercy or his love and on and on and on. So will we run out of things to sing about? Absolutely not. We do not run out of things about, sing about. We do not resort to silly lyrics because our God is at work in every aspect of our lives. All we need to do is have eyes to see him. So pray with me now for those eyes. Heavenly Father, your word is so good. We are so blessed to have your word to guide us. We do not fumble around in the dark trying to figure things out. And your word points us to what we need. And Lord, we need to see the many blessings, the many forgiven sins, the many times of obedience and sacrifice, the many painful moments, not to mention the many happy moments as blessings from you. Lord, stir up in us these new songs, which, Lord, they don't have to look like the top 50 charts. Lord, they just need to look like crying out to you. So I pray that we would do that. I pray that now that we have got our eyes open to this gospel that just keeps expanding each time we look at it, that, Lord, we would turn and praise you. Help us to have those new songs on our lips, Lord. In your name, amen.